0: I don't want to be a broker of corporate Judaism. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy podcast. I am Andres Bokoine. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and in the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, I'm honored to have as our guest, Rabbi Rick Jenkins, president of the Union for Reform Judaism. Rick has been a dynamic leader of the URJ and made his centerpiece idea of audacious hospitality, a watchword inside and also beyond the reform Movement. Thank you, Rick, for being here. My, My pleasure. pleasure. I wanted to start talking a little bit about your personal journey. How did you get to
1: where you are today? Uh, it's a both a long journey and in some ways a surprising journey. I was not that kid who imagined that I was going into uh, the rabbinate in any way, shape or form. Uh, But in college, I really began a a personal spiritual quest. I went and lived in Israel for a year, studied at Hebrew University, and met Rabbi David Hartman of Blessed Memory, who simply turned the lights on for me. Here's an Orthodox philosopher, and we're studying, you know, Spinoza, Maimonides Halevi. But it was so intellectually rich, um, it just drew me in. And I went and lived on a kibbutz for a while and, and just had to dig in and dig in and dig in and then decided, you know, I'm going to go to rabbinical school because I'm going to be a Jewish academic and I need that training. And one thing led to the next. Uh, but I have to say that the whole time I was thinking to myself, how would I become involved in organized Jewish life when it had been so under inspiring to me? So I said, I don't want to be a broker of corporate Judaism, hmm. but I want For people to access what I've now been able to access in terms of meaning, connection, uh, without all the bureaucratic structures of religious life. The real thing, not the, you know, the trappings. I had been meditating since I was 16 years old and found a Jewish meditative tradition. Uh, Shabbat was an unbelievably powerful thing when you do it in community and not just through you know, the rigmarole of sort of the organized way that I had experienced it as a child. So for me, it was intellectual, it was personal, it was spiritual. It's also about justice. I was at one of our great summer camps in Northern California, and um, it was a reform summer camp. And, you know, one day Cesar Chavez was coming to camp and I said to my counselor, that's amazing, Cesar Chavez, the head of the farm workers union, is coming to his camp's SWIG. And I said, I didn't know he was Jewish. And my counselor said, you're an idiot. (laughs) He's not Jewish, but he has a Jewish message about the food that we eat and the workers that are being mistreated. So for me, the justice element, the spiritual practice element, and the intellectual ideas piece were all a part of it. And I, I wasn't able to, a little bit further along the journey, to put it together into kind of a more integrated way of living. You didn't mention God. Did he play a role? He or she or he or God? For, for certain. And what I discovered about God was that actually the um, the reality of God, not all of the gods speak in the liturgy, but the idea of the source of all, the oneness that is literally connecting everyone and everything, that notion of holy one. Um, it's, that it's was Spinozian God in a very, way. Right? Well, but also very much of the Hasidic masters and of Aleph Bald Gordon, who was the, uh, right. the Zionist master that I did my rabbinic thesis on uh, in my fifth year of rabbinical school. So that that was definitely a theological language that spoke to me, but it wasn't the language of the you know the matbeatfila, the the kind of the organized liturgical, even the biblical. A lot of the biblical frames, you know, were very anthropomorphic. And, uh, you know, La deal, but I remember studying Maimonides with uh, Rabbi Hartman, and Maimonides was crazed about the anthropomorphic ways that God was depicted and said, uh, that, can't, was against he that, depicted. said that can't be it. And I'm just, say, yes, that can't be it. And that is certainly not the only way or even the main way Jews through history and, 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 and even today have found a way to understand and relate to God, not just to talk about God. You said you didn't feel the appeal
0: of the structures of Judaism, of the trappings, as it were, of the organizational bureaucracies. And yet, here you are, <laughs> running one of
1: the biggest. So how did that happen? Well, first, the the first step along that journey is my decision to become a congregational rabbi. I also was a modern dancer and a choreographer and studied um, ritual dance at NYU in the performance studies So, I had a lot of different pieces of my exploration going. But when I was in rabbinical school, I interned with an extraordinary rabbi, Rabbi Jack Stern. And uh, I watched and experienced what he did with a community. And I I was so smitten by that. But every one of my rabbinical school classmates heard me say the one thing I would never do would be the rabbi of a large suburban congregation. And I would tell anybody who would listen. And there I was, uh, nine years out of rabbinical school after having led a wonderful congregation in Brooklyn Heights, New York. I went and I said, you know what? We have to transform Jewish life. And if I can do that here in the suburbs, uh, I can do it anywhere and it can be done by others anywhere. So I went there as a challenge to try and remake and reinvent and transform organized Jewish life into something that wasn't the you know, the cartoon of a bad Hebrew school and services that were disaffecting and a bureaucratic approach to everything where layers and layers kept you from the real learning or the real experiencing. And uh, while I was there, we did every transformation project, the Synagogue 2000, the Experiment of Congressional Education, and the lay leadership and my colleagues were open to it all. And uh, almost 20 years into that, uh, the URJ knocked on my door and said, hey, with what you've been working on in congregation would you think about bringing that same mindset could we reinvent not just synagogues a few dozens could we kind of rethink the whole thing and i said uh, well um that's a project that would take every ounce of my heart and mind and strength and uh seven years ago when they knocked i, I said let's try that sounds like a really noble thing but this is about reinventing jewish life and you don't have to be a genius to look at the rapid change in everything right. that we're experiencing. And Jewish life has been a bit too lethargic in adapting to the world in which we live. Why do you think that is? I think, well, first of all, religions in general are about tradition. Whether you want to break with tradition, reimagine it, but there's a tradition. Right. And even when you're the reform movement, which is always you know, trying to you know, jump off the tradition into new forms, People hold on. They know what they know. They know what they've experienced. Even I remember when my, uh, bar, after my bar mitzvah, um, the synagogue was going through a renovation and we didn't take any picture of my, of my bar mitzvah because they said, oh, you know, come back when it's done. And I remember the, you know, the week it was finished, we were at synagogue and uh, this woman was shaking her head with all the changes. She says, "Ugh, ugh." And my mom reminded her, she said, you hated the old synagogue. She said, yeah, but I was used to it. Yeah, I think there's something psychological in that, but I also think that the trappings of religious traditions kind of hold on uh, to the efforts to change.
0: Yeah, my, my, my feeling about that is that we also have trouble understanding what is really changing. I mean, we think that what is changing is merely technology or, you know, the ways of... Relating to certain programs or and certain ideas, but I I think that what is changing is the concept that the individual has of herself. Meaning, we live in a time of hyper empowered individuals, and our organizations, our communities are all based on the idea
1: of the collective. Yes, and what we know about those super empowered individuals in every study today, particularly of young adults. Mm-hmm. uh post-baby boomers. So we're yeah. talking about millennials, Gen Z, um, to a generation, they are arguably the most lonely and feeling uh kind of disconnect. So in that high-powered individual is still the yearning to be part of something larger. Not to lose my, you know, my sense of self, but but I think we have a deep longing for people to find that sense of, you know, a deeper connection to a community, to uh, a larger movement, something that really is helping me to also actualize my personal aspiration, but on a larger scale. I think that's not lost in this change, but I do think that, um, you know, as we think about, you know, kind of how we tune into the changes, a lot of times I think in religious life, we've tended to tweak. I say, oh, if we just try, oh, you know, Facebook, if we just try to do everything on, like everything's gonna fall into place, like. There's no simple little thing. And a lot of times what we've tried in terms of change is uh, only in delivery um, and not, you know, kind of how do we rethink the way we do Jewish. So it's a little bit about focusing on the how
0: instead of focusing on what we should focus, we should be focusing more, which is the what and the why. Absolutely. Why being Jewish? Why What's the value to me and to the world of Judaism in a world
1: with an endless multiplicity of options? A- including that when I you know, have a yoga practice, I know that after an intensive yoga class, I feel more grounded, more aligned, more alive. Right. Like I see the return on the investment of my and it's immediate, immediate And it's immediate. Right. And how does my life as a spiritually practicing as a kind of moral Jewish being, as a person who takes the ideas and the learning, how, how does that in concrete ways make me a more fulfilled and whole person? I think we as a Jewish community, we haven't like talked about that way, we, like even we how to give the guilt sermon, you know, like right. you, you need to be because your grandparents and because of the Shoah, and now because of Israel, all of which are real. But if we can't articulate why it's of inestimable, value to me in my life, for my family, for my community, I think we're going to be, you know, just, you know, roping in the dark. So
0: if I woke you up in the middle of the night and I ask you, why do I have to be Jewish? What would
1: you tell me? Well, for me, you know, Judaism is this gift of a uh, wisdom tradition. Of a, of a ability to live and explore the deepest levels of why I'm here on this earth. And it's been built over millennia. And I, you know, I lucked into it. I was born into it. But there are a whole lot of people, I'm going to say millions of people who weren't born into it, who also learn about it and say, this is an amazing thing, this thing called Shabbat. I remember mm-hmm. having non-Jewish people at my house for Shabbat and going like, can we do this? And you say, like, I think you can. You know, maybe not the Hebrew, maybe not the Kiddush. So I think very clearly. And when I wake up in the morning, I also want to be part of repairing, healing, and leading the world to be what it needs to be. And frankly, Judaism is that way to integrate repair of the brokenness in the world, repair of the brokenness in me personally, in my, you know, immediate circle. And it's giving me tools to do this on a daily basis. Some of which, you know, were a little too uh, male-dominated, a little too exclusivist. But the Ecar, the, the essential pieces, are still incredibly alive and powerful. And it made that difference in my life, and I see it in others. And I want to share it out. It's not. It's not to be hoarded by you know the lucky people who happen to fall into it. Yeah. But They're anyone who will come everybody. to it. We are the reform movement. You know, some people make the mistake and call us the reformed. They put an ED on the end right. of reform mm-hmm. as if it was done. Reform never is done. It's a constant adaption. It's a constant changing, growing, trying, testing. And when we think we're, you know, figured it out, we are certainly uh, dead. Uh, It has to be alive and breathe, which is why my predecessors have all pushed the limits. When Alexander Schindler a Blessed Memory in the late 1970s said, why are we pushing uh, interfaith families away? That makes no sense. Let's bring them close. The Jewish world went crazy, said you can't do that. And then when he said patrilineal, if your mother or your father is Jewish, that will help bring more people closer to Judaism. Again, reforming sets off fireworks. 1972, the first woman in North America is ordained, Rabbi Sally Prezan. So the reforming is always pushing the edges, not for the sake of being different or look how contemporary we are, but because like us, like our individual and collective, we need to always be growing, changing, adapting, evolving. And that is built into the DNA of reform's ideology how how do you think you're pushing the limits um i think in in very real ways so when i started um you know seven years ago one of the first biennials that i spoke at was the san diego which was really the first one that was during my full presidency in articulating audacious hospitality again we had had interfaith outreach which is incredibly powerful and important but I look at the Jewish community and see that diversity is not a, you know, a, a problem to solve. It's a gift to, to build on, to cherish. And you know, we had, I think as a movement, done pretty well over the last decades about welcoming interfaith families. But what happens when you uh, make it more challenging? Those are now Jews of color, um, LGBTQ, some of whom never were connected, some once were, no longer are. New, you know, kind of experiences of Hebrew school having been really excruciating. So, how do we think about that? More people are on the outskirts, the periphery, than are inside. That's new in Jewish life. That means we have to pay attention and who's on the periphery and how do we build bridges and not just in a patronizing way. So, you know what? We're going to let you come to our party. Our party is called Jewish Life. We're going to invite you to come sit at our table. How do we invite people to come and bring their thinking, their agitation, their questions, and they're going to also reframe this thing that we think we know called Judaism? That is the gift of audacious hospitality. It's not just being friendly. By the way, being friendly is good. Friendly, it's, not, it's not bad. It's but good. Yeah. But it's this is deeper than this is about. We need the people whose voices and thinking, and frankly, um, I would say, real—you uh, know—kind of assertiveness is not in our you know in our thinking right now we need them to come be with us so we can actually become who we are otherwise we're just presiding over an ever shrinking ever dying people which is not is, is not what Jewish life was ever meant to be and i think our challenge is of course is to reframe that that thinking so it's interesting because the traditional paradigm
0: of integration welcoming was predicated on the idea that there is a majority, there is a mainstream, and that quote-unquote welcomes or integrates a minority. But now that's not what's happening. Jewish life is a mosaic, a patchwork of different minorities, as it were. And so the, the idea of we are the normative Jews and we're opening our doors to others and let them Come in. It may not be really relevant because we're not normative anymore.
1: I think I think that's hundred percent correct. And I think if we are imagining, you know, kind of what this thing is going to look like, yeah. you know, we had all these. The reform movement grew exponentially after World War II. Conservative movement had been the largest, and there are plenty of people who have come to Reform Judaism because they've come from, they've come yeah. from conservative, from modern Orthodox. They've come from, you know, kind of outside of, uh, of Judaism altogether. And, you know, that's, that's a wonderful journey. Our challenge and opportunity, I think the big one, is to, um, is to make sure that they don't just travel through, but stay and help us build and reimagine what Jewish life is going to look like. And to do that is not simply to lower everything to the lightest, most common denominator of Judaism. Right but to also be able to widen the tent and deepen it at the same time. And if you widen it without deepening, it just becomes endlessly large and and stands for nothing and is very thin. If you deepen it and only deepen it, you're gonna just condense it into a smaller and smaller circle. I think those two simultaneously is what the movement today used to be. But that diversity that I was celebrating three seconds ago is also the challenge of creating a commonality. Uh, besides the Big tent. what is it? What's the, what's the thing, the glue that really does hold us together?
0: And there's a general mi- misconception in some quarters that the reform movement is about just lowering entry barriers. And there's no consciousness, I think, of the depth of commitment that the reform movement demands from, from its members.
1: I think that's 100% right. And again, sometimes those caricatures that are passed around yeah. endlessly. What do they call it? The, 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 the lazy, the hazy, and the crazy, right? Right. Which is not fair to the Orthodox. It's certainly no, not fair. fair to the Conservative. And it does not describe who we are. Yeah. And frankly, I would not have dug in. I, when I applied to rabbinical school, I took the applications from all the major movements. Yeah. Um, and uh, I found that this is where I wanted to study because there would be an openness spiritually, intellectually. And um, I have not been disappointed about that core. Um, But I think the deepening part is key. I mean, once you come and you taste a little bit, you know, it should draw you in and allow you to, to really touch the live embers of this tradition.
0: Now, there's a lot of talk these days, and, and you and I discussed this about this whole notion of post-denominational Judaism, and uh, I'm, I'm
1: interested in just hearing what you think about that whole idea. Denominations, just as a concept, are really an import from Christianity. You know, to even talk about them, so there's a group of churches, houses of worship, that think and pray and practice this way as opposed to that way. It denominates, right? It it sort of separates. I really believe, before I answer about post-denomination, I don't think we're a denomination at all. We're a movement, a movement. Let me just take, for example, the civil rights was a movement. It had organizations, it had the NAACP, the Urban League, you can go on and name. And there were people who every day felt so connected to the work of making America a more just society. They were part of the movement. They weren't necessarily a dues-paying member of one of the organizations in the, quote, official civil rights movement. And I think today there's a wide swath of people. If you, if you actually pay attention to the 2013 Pew study, said that the reform, those who identified as reform were 1.9 million people. That's almost 2 million people. Not all of them are paying dues to a congregation or sending their kid to one of our summer camps or participating in one of our justice initiatives with the Religious Action Center in Washington, D.C. Sure. But these are people who, when they ask, they're asked, what is the Judaism that speaks to you? They will say, Reform Judaism is that. Now, that gives us an opportunity to build on something that's a positive association, but may not have a very concrete expression in that person's life, But it means that we're galvanized and we're not just trying to survive, you know, you know, label, find a blessed memory. You know, said, what a great, you know, tagline for the Jewish people. Come survive with us. (laughs) I mean, it's like a crazy. We have actually something really essential to do in the world. And it's not just for personal fulfillment. It's actually to shape a more just and compassionate world. That's core to what being Jewish has always been. But it's been lost in much of traditional Jewish life where we become very insular, and very much focused on our well-being and, and self and not participating in the larger task of tikkun olam, letaken olam b'mal machut to repair the world in a concrete way. So I, I think that a movement has a deep purpose. It's going somewhere. It's trying to accomplish something. It's not just trying to create, you know, four more congregations and, uh, you know, six more professionals. It's got something really urgent to do in the world, like the civil rights movement, And it can't be defined only by those who are currently officially um, affiliated with it.
0: Another idea of the movement is that it allows for something that we're looking for in the Jewish community, which is scale. Right, one of the umbrellas, you know, umbrella organizations like the URJ, like JFNA, like JCCA, they they get a bad rap sometimes because people don't really understand what they're there for. But by serving as the linchpin of a movement,
1: you can actually create change at a very big scale. Yes, and if you think about. Um you know, the task of Jewish life, the scalability. If we're, if we're trying to do something with a people, we're right. trying to do with some of these core values, a nice little thing that we experiment on the corner of, you know, 30th Street and, uh, and Broadway could be the most lovely, wonderful thing for the 30 families. But we're actually having to think on a scale, how are we going to move the Jewish people, the Jewish project forward? I think of, you know, a couple of uh, years ago, I was trying to get across Manhattan um, and Russia right. And nothing was moving. The buses weren't moving. Cars weren't moving. I imagined that the subways weren't moving. And this guy saw me really frustrated, trying to figure out. And he was in one of those pedicabs, you know. Yeah, 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 And he pulls up, he goes, I can get you wherever you need to go. I said, I don't think you can. Because I don't, it's not just me. I got to take millions of people with me. Right. So I think some of what we see in Jewish life are great inventive pedicabs, which may give us something that we could then scale out. Right, But we got to get a lot of people to the Jewish future. But you need, you need that structure to scale it up.
0: In other words, right. you can be at the URJ, and you are, at the URJ, that platform that can recoup innovative stuff that is happening in a congregation in
1: Westchester and move it across the country and across the world. 100%. And if we actually want to reset some of the key assumptions of Jewish life, the way Alexander Schindler did it in the 70s, now, of course... You know, being inclusive, feel like, well, everybody does that. Having women have full egalitarian participation in Jewish life, whatever. You know, we have orthodox women rabbis today. So right. again, how do we reset some of the things? And it's not out of hubris that we somehow have a box of answers that we're just throwing out a few answers every couple of months or years, but to really work on the project. I mean, the biggest group we haven't talked about are millennials, young adults, you know, who frankly will be the, they're the largest generation we've ever had. Every Jewish organization I know of spends endless time worrying about them. Where are they? Why aren't they more like us? The truth is they may in fact be one of the most creative and engaged Jewish generations, but it's not getting expressed in the organized ways that we've organized Jewish life. And for many people, that's a giant, you know, kind of, you know, almost destabilizing thought. It could actually be an energizing thought. If we didn't, try to solve, you know, the challenge of their Jewish life for them, but engaged in what will Jewish life look like? It may not have all the structures, all the organizations that we currently have. It doesn't mean that more people can't be more connected to Jewish life. So again, what are the key assumptions, the limiting assumptions we have? And what is it that we're trying to do? Are we trying to just, you know, make Judaism a museum that we hold on to and preserve and it's pretty and it's nice and we can remember what our grandparents served us to eat and you know going to synagogue. Majority of young Jews are choosing not to engage in the way that if if their families did engage, they're very likely engaging in different ways. We have got to be paying attention to that and helping to adapt and not just try to steer them towards the structures that we have.
0: Going back to the issue of scale, one of the places where the reform movement really is reaching scale is in Israel. And as we know, that is, you know, compounded by a lot of issues. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience dealing with issues of recognition for the reform movement in Israel, Jewish pluralism?
1: So is it okay if I shared some good news? Would that be okay on the podcast? I don't know. Do people have a tolerance? you know, For pure, good, news? good no. news? No. We don't
0: like good news. No, of course. Ah, okay. of course. So, Go so ahead. Good here's, news.
1: Here's a counter narrative. Yeah. Obviously, we know that we have been leading, along with the Concerned Movement, the Jewish Federations of America, the effort to create an egalitarian, pluralistic prayer space at the Western Wall, the Kotel. Why? To be that symbolic place to say that Israel is for everyone, the Kotel is for everyone. Jews of whatever background or practice. Yeah. We but, also,
0: but, but let me just 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 interject here. It's not just about the Kotel, right? The Kotel is a no, symbol.
1: I'm using it as a symbol. Right. The larger struggle is for a more egalitarian, pluralistic Israel, right? which we need in terms of civil marriage, all these different things. So all the issues of a chief rabbinate that's very exclusively, not just Orthodox, but increasingly ultra-Orthodox, here is the counter-narrative. A one year ago, the Jewish People's Policy Institute released a study that said the reform movement has grown dramatically in the last 10 years. We used to be, you know, a blip, less than 1%. Then they were, we were 2%. As of last October, we are 8% of Jewish Israelis identify with the reform movement. 5% identify with the conservative movement. The math. Equals 13% of Jewish Israelis identify with one of the non-Orthodox movements, which is larger than the number of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel. We don't vote in one block. Right. So it's not necessarily that political force. But what it means is Israelis are hungry for a, a choice, that there are many ways authentically to live Jewish life and to, you know, experience the Jewish tradition to study. So in the midst of a you know set of policies that are discriminatory. Against non Orthodox Judaism, we're growing. It, it's, it's just extraordinary. We've ordained, um, you know, very recently, our 100th Israeli Reform Rabbi. We're growing the number of our congregations. We have these pre army programs, our Mechinot. Uh, we have a justice institute in Jerusalem that just helped to defeat the racist party in Israel from being able to sit in the Knesset. So being a Reformed Jew is a public good. And it is a genuine choice. So I think that a lot of times the headline is there's a new roadblock, you know, in front of us. And those roadblocks are real. I'm not telling you for one second they're not. But in the midst of that, Reformed Judaism, pluralistic Judaism, conservative, it's growing because people want there to be something more than the current, very stifling, coercive, ultra-Orthodox establishment. <music>
0: Now, I grew up in a Judaism that was deeply connected to human rights. Like my, my Jewish role model was, on the one hand, the Zionist leaders. On the other hand, you know, Robert Marshall Meyer, who was a fighter for human rights. So for me, it's edged in my consciousness that Judaism is really about justice and, 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 and the way the Jewish contribution to this world from the prophets onward is really about creating a better world. But now there is a debate around it. Now now there is, there's been a couple of books written about the idea that tikkun olam is not really a Jewish concept. You know, that there is a sort of an adaptation of progressive liberal
1: values rather than traditional Jewish values. Well, I hope you won't be surprised if I am vehemently opposed okay. to that notion. And I want to give you a concrete expression of why I think it's... By the way, I've debated candidates for the chief Rabbi of Israel in the Knesset, and I've been accused of having made up Tikkun Olam. I said, first of all, would you tell my mom that I made up Tikkun Olam? She'd be very impressed. (laughs) Uh, But the truth is, think of Yom Kippur for a moment. Uh, On the holiest day of the Jewish year, in the morning when we're in the middle of our fast, our texts that we read... Don't just indulge our spiritual practice as a personal quest. The 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah says, you're fasting, you're hungry, you're feeling righteous sitting there in temple. That's not the fast I, God, want from you. I want you to fast from an injustice. I want you to unleash the, uh, the fetter, the you know the prisoner. I want you to care for the homeless. I want you to live core Jewish values. If That is not tikkun olam. I don't know what is. And it wasn't made up by a Reform rabbi in the 21st century, the 20th or the 19th century. It is part of Judaism in its essential. And if you take social justice out of Judaism, the thing unravels. It becomes a little bit like the ultra-Orthodox chief rabbinate, which has hametz inspectors who run around on Pesach to see if, you know, a, a little makolet, a little supermarket on the corner is selling something that's forbidden. But they don't have, you know, ethics. Mashkechimu, we'll go around the business community and see about Jewish ethical teachings. So I think tikkun olam, social justice, however you describe it, whatever you name it, is essential. And I think for today, if you don't have that element in Judaism, it's, it's felt to be a bit self-indulgent and self-referential and not part of the larger scope of what Jewish aspiration has always been.
0: And yet... What differentiates tikkun olam from a Jewish perspective from just any secular social justice, human rights
1: movement? Well, if you just take the social justice piece out, like you take Shabbat out of Judaism and say, I'm just going to do Shabbat. If you take, you know, Torah and Talmud and just take it, its it's, it's power is its integrated way. Like on Pesach, we sit at Seder. And we're talking in a very urgent way about how do we make our society free for everyone? How do we so again it's built into the ritual, it's built into the, the um the way in which I observe you know, life cycle as a, a family. When I take my little eight, eight-day-old baby to the chair of Elijah and I talk about your role in helping to ready the world for Elijah. So I think. You know, again, if you just pull the one strand out, you can say it looks like just universal human rights consciousness, but it's woven into the very fabric so of it's everything.
0: It's about articulating the universal and the particular in, in the same, same breath.
1: And having a way to do it. Like when I, you know, right. light the candles on Shabbat and make Kiddush, I take a giant sigh that the battling all week for righteousness and justice, that I need to replenish my spirit and my community, my family. So that come Saturday night, Sunday morning, I'm going to be back out there. If I don't have the way and the text to support me and the practices to support me. I'm going to run out of gas very soon on that journey. Maybe the challenge for, for us when working
0: with young Jews that are you know, really driven by this idea of social justice and human rights and, and those values is how to, quote unquote, Judaize. That, that quest in a way that anchors it in Jewish tradition and makes it different than simply being a secular social justice
1: movement. Exactly. Why is it that it's okay to start your Jewish exploration with uh, Torah or holidays? But I think for most young Jews, they started their Jewish exploration with, with uh, Tikkun Olam. Why can't you start with that and build more onto it and with it. Why why can't that be the beginning of your Jewish journey? And oh my God, there are texts that help me to understand how difficult it is to create a just society and how do I decide who I'm gonna give tzedakah to? I don't just give to everybody equal. So again, why why can't we start wherever that person's interest and doorway is, but then have it lead to more?
0: Thank you, Rick, very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much to Rabbi Rick Jacobs. You can follow his work at the Union for Reform Judaism at urj.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. We do want to hear your feedback about this podcast and in general, guest ideas, new Jewish denominations you may want to start, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I'll leave you with this thought from Gloria Steinem. The future depends entirely on what each of us does every day. A movement is only people moving. So keep moving, keep giving, keep driving change and join us next time on What Kids.